0: Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Well, good afternoon, everybody. How's everybody doing in the room today? Right, good? Right, good? You guys look great. Happy Father's Day. I want to say happy Father's Day to all of those of you who are with us online as well. Can we give those guys a hand, everybody? Give it up for them. Thank you, guys. Hey, just before I jump in, I want to say this. I know we're having fun today celebrating Father's Day. We've got some great photo opportunities out there for you. I hope you'll take advantage of that. But I'm also aware that like Mother's Day, Father's Day can bring up a lot of different kinds of emotions uh, in us. For those of us, for those of you who may have not had a, a father figure in your life or a dad involved or, or he was absent or, or you've lost your father, or maybe you've lost your husband and this day is a painful reminder of of um, something that's gone and something that's lost. I want to just tell you that we see you and we love you and we're just grateful um, that you've chosen to come here in spite of all of that. So um, we're praying for you, I promise you that. We're praying for you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're in this, this series, Songs of Summer, and we're going to come to Psalm 139 today. And I, I want to start out today by asking you a question. Um, h- how many people in the world do you think really know you? Like, really know you? Not, not. come on, not the Instagram you, not the, come on students, not the TikTok you, not that carefully curated online persona that maybe you've gotten, not, not the performing you, not the... Not that you at work, like really know you. And I'm not even talking about the worst of you. Not the best of you, not the worst of you, but just really know you. Is it 20 people? Do 20 people in this world really know you? Um, Is it 10? Is it five? It's an interesting question. It's, uh, I think, an important question As we approach this psalm today, because this psalm is about being known. It's about being fully known and and loved at our lowest, at our highest, at our best, at our worst. It's about knowing, being known, and and being loved. In fact, in the first six verses, the, the psalm is divided into four sections of six verses, each of them very different from the one that precedes it. In the first six verses, the word know or a derivative of that word is used six times, and, and then in, in, there's the word uh, knowledge that is also talking about this, are really seven times in the first six verses alone. And, and do you know who, who, who David, who's the writer of this psalm, do you know who David says knows him? God. God knows him, knows him. The real him, the best, the worst, the highest, the lowest. And, and and he says that there is nothing that is hidden from him, like, like absolutely nothing, which is, come on, it's kind of terrifying a little bit. Come on, am, am I right, right? It's both wonderful and also terrifying. And, and I want you to think about that for a moment because I think it's true, maybe not for everybody, but for some of us for sure, that... There's really nothing we want more than to know that people really, really know us, but they still love us. And there's also few things more terrifying than the idea that somebody would come to know the real us and then shrink away or reject us out of hand. We both love it and we're we're terrified of it. There's something about being known where I'm able to be fully honest and I would say the better word is transparent, the good, the bad, the ugly of me, that somebody could know that and still um, take me in. And, and there's also something about not being known, not being understood or misunderstood that in my own personal experience can, can do incalculable damage to, to the human psyche when we, when we feel isolated even in crowds when we feel all alone, when we, when we feel like nobody understands us or that no one sees us, that we're unseen. And, and, and we live now in such a performance culture where um, and not and some people are oblivious to this, but a lot of people are attuned into this, that we feel like we're being judged on some level for our performance at home, at work, in the gym, our online persona as a dad, as a husband, as a mother, as a student, as a friend. And the, there's a sense then that there are eyes on us. And that notion that there are eyes on us can co- sort of press us into all sorts of, co- uh, of contortions emotionally, mentally, e- even physically. Um, we, we just end up exhausted at a soul level. Our souls are often weary. We can't find our place. We want that place that we are fully known, fully loved, a place to belong, a place where despite our hang-ups and our habits and our hurts and our baggage and our junk, we can rest and be, and not feel like we have to keep up appearances. And so we find, I should say it this way, so I find, that sometimes this world can just be exhausting. The noise, the pace, the pressures, the chaos, the sense that I'm always on a journey, but I'm never quite arriving. Seems like we're not, we're running, but we're not getting anywhere. Never satisfied, it's not enough trying to find a, a, a identity, trying to find fulfillment at a soul level. And we find that these things that we think are gonna fill us up don't. And so, come on, like the great theologian, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Any, anybody? <laughs> and I still haven't found, anybody, what I'm looking, okay, anyways. Um, so... so So we go to God. We we look to God, which is the right thing. Uh, But some of you, like me, had the wrong view of God, perhaps growing up. I grew up with a vision of a God who was chronically disappointed in me. Because I couldn't do all the things that I was told I had to do all at the same time. I couldn't get it right all at the same time. Um, To be honest, it's been difficult for me to sort of rid myself of that so the idea that i am known by god was not necessarily a comforting one right it's like i don't really want him to know all the things that are going on in my heart and my head does, does that make sense to anybody okay I, I know i know the religious people they don't that doesn't make sense to you but some of you real talk it makes sense to you right when i'm ashamed when i feel guilty for what i've done or not done or what i've undone and I just want to ride and run and hide. This psalm that we're going to read says there is no place to hide. There's nowhere to run that he won't find me. Where am I supposed to go with my stuff? And like, in, in, in my own imagination, it's like even God's not happy with me. I, I had a performance culture with him as well. Like I have to perform. To, and if I don't perform in the way he wants me to, he's chronically unhappily, unhappy with me. And thankfully, I had it all wrong. I didn't know him but all along, he's known me. So David writes. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm one thirty-nine, probably the most intimate in all of the collection of the Song Book that is the Song, um, uh, the Book of Psalms. And he says, "Search me, you have searched me, Lord. Investigated, like, like a like a detective. You have searched me." This is figurative language because God doesn't need to search. He always knows exactly what's going on, yes or no. He doesn't have to, but this is David creating language that we can grasp. You have searched me, Lord, and you say this with me, and you you know me. So, this is the framework. David is saying of all of us and, and himself God knows your heart, He knows your thoughts, He knows your motives. He knows your fears. He knows your dreams. He knows your frustrations. He knows your past, your present. He knows what's going to happen in the future. He understands you. He notices what's going on around you. He notices what's happening to you. He knows what's happening inside of you. In fact, God has all of us pegged better than we could ever for ourselves. So... With that frame of reference, I wanna skip all the way down to the last two verses, Psalm 23, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, he says this. He says, search me, God, and this is verse 23, and know my heart, test me, and know my, say this with me, my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any offensive, the other word is grievous, any grievous or offensive way, any way that grieves you in me and, and then lead me in the way everlasting. I want you to think about what we've said. There is nothing that many of us want more than to be fully known and there's nothing we're more terrified of than being fully known. So how in the world and, and why in the world would David pray a prayer like that? Right? This is a bold prayer. Like like this Father's Day, this is a man's prayer. Come on, somebody. Right? Ladies, you can pray it too, all right? Right? How is it that David can pray this prayer and basically say, hey God, I want you to come and dig around in this heart of mine and I want you to find out what needs to be found in there. And if there's anything that you find that causes you grief or offends you in any way, if there's anything of, uh, 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 if there's a way of grief inside of me, I want you to root it out. I want you to, I want you to rip it out. I want you to, I want you to turn me from the from the way of, of offense. I want you to turn me around from that, and I want you to lead me to the way of, of everlasting life, the ancient way. The, the, the right way, the way of faith, the way that endures, that's what it means. Take me from the grievous way, the offensive way, to the way uh, everlasting. And when David prays this prayer, it seems like he already knows the process by which God is going to answer the prayer. So, so we find what he wants, he wants God to search him and, and know his thoughts. And, and then he says, and this is how God's gonna do it, so the, the what is search me, the how is Test me. Try me. Like, you're gonna put my thoughts and my motives and my innermost being, you're gonna bring them to the surface and put them on trial, bring them into the light of the day so the truth is revealed of me, the truth of me. And this is what he's asking for and think about that. Why would you pray that? Because he wants the grievous or the offensive way that could lead him to a life of sin, that could lead him apart from, well, away from God, the way of death, the way of sin, the way of brokenness, the way he wants that rooted out of him, and here's where we get the why, so that he can be put on the way everlasting. That's a pretty good reason why I would wanna pray this prayer. So, so here's what David is saying, because I want you to understand this, because I hope, I hope that you'll pray this prayer. So so he's saying, he's implying that the real us, that very few people actually know, is found when we're under trial. Who we really are when we are in the, the, the crucible of life, whatever it is that bubbles up to the surface in those moments of testing and trouble and trial and pain, that is the real us. The things that are in our hearts that, that when we're squeezed under trial and pressure, it, 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 it's, it, what bubbles up to the top is what he calls anxious thoughts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So, so when David says my, my thoughts, he, he's not talking about just all the various myriad of thoughts that flick through our, our minds all day long, the thousands of them. The word is, the, the word is cares know my cares, know my uh, anxieties. God, I want you to search me, test me, put what's inside of me on trial, the stuff I'm worried about, the stuff I'm anxious about, because again, when we're tested and when we're tried, what actually bubbles up to the surface are our worries, yes or no. You go through hard times, what happens? You worry. It rises. What's hidden comes to the surface. When we lose our job or when we're worried about our job being lost and we're squeezed and we look at the bank account and we see, come on, inflation, and, and we see like, like interest rates. Come on, everybody. Like, come on, bro. Leave us alone up in here. It's like we got to deal with that out there. No, no, this is real talk, right? The anxieties go up. The worries begin to occupy our mind, and our mind begins to run through all the scenarios and the what-ifs. And think about this. When you're anxious... And those of you who've ever dealt with anxiety, I have. Your mind runs. You can't stop it from running, right? And, and so, and so it, it's not calm. It's not stayed on Jesus. I don't have the peace of God that the God of peace gives me, right? Philippians chapter 4, right? It, it, it's a mind full of fear, worrying about outcomes, worrying about what's going to happen next. How can I control it? How can I fix this? And so anxiety's begin to pop up in those moments of trial and what begins to act, happen is that fast, fearful thinking, just boom, 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 is exposing within us and to David that there is a faithless kind of thinking going on. That as fearful fear rises, faith gets smaller. Search me. Know me. Test me. So that what comes to the top will expose to me what's 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 going on in my life? So, so let me say it like this. When the pressures of the world are more real to us than the promises of our God in His Word, that's a sure sign that anxious thoughts have more power in our lives than faith-filled thoughts. It's a sure sign. The presence of those anxious thoughts and worries that flood our system have the, the, the simultaneous power of pushing away the peace of God, the presence of God, uh, and, and, and his peace. And so what David is, is praying is, his, is, God, I want you to know me in those moments. I want you to search me, and I want you to test me and put my thoughts and my intentions on trial so that all of that bubbles to the top again. Why would anyone want to pray this prayer? It's a scary prayer David prays. Hey, God, I know you know me better than everybody else, but I want you to dig in me even a little bit more until, until you see me at my lowest. And you see me where internally, mentally, I'd rather crawl under the covers and not come out because of the pressures all around me are causing me to fall apart. Test me in those moments, God, and see what bubbles to the top because when, what, what anxieties occupy my mind to the extent that I no longer see the promises of God and maybe without even realizing it, I've stopped trusting in you. Bring all of that up, God. And here's an interesting thought. We read this in verse one. He says, you, what, you have searched me and you Know me. Now, this word me here doesn't just mean the way we think of me. He, it means pathways. You know my pathways. You know my habits. You know my trends. You know my behaviors. You know the hab- habitual things that I struggle with. You have searched me and you know me intimately, including all of my worst ways. Now, David's saying, You already have searched me in verse 1. You already know me. So why is he in verse 23 saying, search me, oh God? Right? It's like he's already declared that he's been searched. He's already declared that God knows him intimately in in a a myriad of ways. Now we're getting somewhere. See, what he's saying is search me, test me, know me, try me. All my anxious thoughts, let those bubble to the surface so I can see what's been hidden from even me. Because men, let me talk to you right now because I'm one and I know exactly how this is. Men, we minimize and we compartmentalize worry and fear and things. We stuff them deep, deep down. We stuff them down and we call them anything but what they really are which we're gonna find out what they are. And David's saying, God, I know my ways. I know I minimize. I know I compartmentalize. I need you to test me, try me, make everything come up so I can see what I've glossed over, what I've tucked away, what I've acted like is no big deal. Bring all of that up so I can see what you see. You know what? These anxious thoughts, these deep level anxieties, these fears, you know what they are? They're a clue. And do you know what they are a clue of? A couple things. They're a clue of what we care most about. But they're also a clue of what we're spending a lot of mental and emotional energy focusing on. So so this word that's translated, I'm going to tell you why this is important now. This word that's translated as offensive or grievous, see if there is any offensive or grievous way in me. In the Hebrew, it literally means idolatrous ways. Now hang with me. If I'm, if if, David's saying, if, if, see if there's any idolatrous ways in me, if, if I'm worshiping with my time, with my energy, with my money, with my attention, with my worries, with my chronic fears, if I'm worshiping something other than you by the level of focus I'm giving to it. So, so some scholars say that the Hebrew word idol- that we, we've translated offensive and, and, and grievous that means actually idolatrous. He's saying search me because there are people, there are scholars that say he had been accused of idolatry by people around him. People are always taking shots at David. Go read the Psalms. Constantly taking shots at him. And he's now saying search me God, in case what they're saying about me is actually true, see if there is any idolatrous ways, anything that I've put at a level higher than you. And could it be true that for David, and that for you and I, that our anxious thoughts are indicators not of just what we care about most or what we focus on most, but what's become idolatrous in our hearts those things that we're actually serving, even though we sing and we say, I I believe in God, I come to church, blah, 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 right? But what we're actually serving with our time, with our goals, with what we're after in life, the significance, the fame, the money, the prestige, the affirmation, the sense that I am a somebody, right? Do do, do you remember um, Jesus' teaching on the parable of the sower, Talks about a farmer who goes out and sows seed, and he says that the seed falls on four different kinds of ground. There's the, the rocky ground, there's the shallow ground, there's the thorny ground, there's the good ground. And the ground represents the human heart. That there's all kinds of people's hearts that are, in varying degrees, good or, or bad. And, and he says of the, the thorny ground in, in Matthew th- uh, 13, he says, uh, verse 22. The, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, the promises, the truth of, the, of God's word, but the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful, meaning it doesn't land the way it's supposed to. The promises of God, the peace of God The calmness of God because of the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now notice he ties these two together because here's what's true is that um, the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life are often intimately connected to each other, particularly for men. And and so he says the worries of this life, the anxieties, which is what David is talking about, have the potential to choke out the promises of God and and, and the word of God and the peace of God. And he says the deceitfulness of wealth, which is that money can, can buy what money can't buy. That's the deceitfulness of wealth. That, that it can't buy you peace or security or happiness or hope or joy. That, that, that David says that this is this below the level anxiety that occupies our minds so much so that Jesus says the word of God, the promises of God get choked out. That, that in fact, the promises of God, the peace of God, the God of all comfort, the New Testament tells us, he gets pushed most of the time unintentionally and even subconsciously to the fringes of our lives. I worship you, God, I worship you, God, while I'm in this room and every other time, you're out here. David says, God, I want that, all of that, exposed to me because I know what's going to come out is the fact that I'm serving so many other things than you at the motivational center of my life. And I know that what's gonna pop up are grievous ways and offensive ways and even perhaps idolatrous ways and at the very least, what's gonna come to the surface are anxious thoughts in my mind that I've allowed too much space for too long in my heart and in my mind. It's a very wise prayer. 139 again, verse 24, see if there is any offensive what? Way, that's a path. In me, and lead me in the way. Two parallel tracks, two ways that can run simultaneously in our hearts. There is the way that is grievous, offensive, idolatrous, and there is the way of everlasting, the ancient way, the way of faith, the right way that leads to human flourishing, the white right way where what is best for, for me, um, that what your best is for me becomes obvious to me to the extent where my good and your glory intersect in my life. Lead me there, God, because that's where I want to be. That's where I need to be. And now if you're thinking this is a terrible prayer still, Danny, you still haven't convinced me, like I feel you, I feel you, unless you know the heart of the one you're praying to. I don't know if you guys know Jackie Hill Perry, but you should get on Instagram and follow Jackie Hill Perry. She's an amazing woman of God who preaches God's word with power and amazing. Last week, I'm, 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 I love to hear what she says. She says, praying prayers like, God, make me humble, or God, take away the pride in me, sounds terrifying and scary um, if you're praying to the devil who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, Right? And and, and she says, but praying that to my heavenly Father who knows me, loves me, cares for me, wants to purify me, make me more like Jesus and less like the world. That's not dangerous at all. That's just wisdom. To pray a bold prayer like this, you're gonna have to know the great God that's hearing the prayer. It's not enough just to know that I am known. David isn't finished there. Now, I need to come to know the God who knows me. David doesn't just pray this prayer to the air. He prays it to a God he knows and that he loves and that has revealed himself throughout David's lifetime and shown himself faithful and good and loving and kind. Faithful, Come on, somebody. And he's praying, verse 23 and 24, he's praying that out of a deep reservoir of knowledge and intimacy with God, and he gives us insight into that in verses 1 through 18. I'm gonna go quickly now. You're like, you should have already gone quickly. Come on, I'm gonna, hang on. Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Now, you could read that and say, oh, because it's God is far away. No, it means in terms of time and space. You perceive my thoughts way in advance of me having those thoughts. That's what he's saying. You, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all, all my ways. Now, before a word is on my tongue, you... Lord, know it completely. Why? Because he's discerned my thoughts long before I had them. You you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hands upon me. This is a beautiful word right here, that phrase. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit, he says. He's describing now the omniscience of God. The all-knowingness of God. By by the way, Psalm 139 is deeply theological, but it's practical theology. It's applied theology, meaning it's it's accessible. It it means something to my life here and and now. And and so here's David, that warrior, that king, that poet, that, that killer of Goliath, that slayer of the lion and the bear, this man's man saying these things. He's reflecting on the character and the nature of God. He's laying foundations for the, the, the doxology he'll, 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 he'll pray that we just read. And, and I can't get into all this, but verse five again, he says, you hem me in behind and before. It's a hedge of protection that he's both in front of me but he's also got my back all at the same time. He says, you you lay your hand upon me. Now this is a beautiful phrase because it describes an, an ancient Hebrew tradition of fathers laying their hands on their children and bestowing blessing upon them, praying blessings upon them, calling forth what is inside them that they don't see inside themselves yet, calling that forth, reminding them of their worth and their place in the family. And David says, My heavenly father does the same thing. He lays his hand on me and pronounces blessing over me, reminds me of my worth, calls to me and calls from me what he himself put in there, meaning that in God's family, nobodies are are non-existent, meaning nobody is a nobody in God's family because he's laid his hands upon you. But it's not just that, he starts starts talking about his omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere. He says, so where can I flee from your presence? And he begins to imagine all of the locales he might find himself. He says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, the word is sheol, the grave or beneath the grave, You, you, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, verse 10, even there. Notice this. Your hand will what? Will guide me? That's your left. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now I love this, because David is using his wildest imaginations of all the places he could run away to and he says at the end of all of it, even there, meaning that whatever you could possibly imagine, no matter how far away you may run, no matter how far you seem away from him, even there, wherever there is, he's already there. See, some of us think that perhaps we've wandered too far away from God or that maybe our kids or our loved ones has gone so far that they could never come back to their father? And the answer is that wherever they are, God is already there. Even if they don't acknowledge him, even if they don't even know he is, he's there. And with one hand, he's guiding. With the other hand, he's holding them fast. And I would just say this to a dad or to a mother who thinks about giving up praying for your child because they've wandered away. Never stop praying because God, wherever they are, God is already there. Come on, somebody. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So we're saying, man, it's getting darker and darker out in this world. Not to God, it's not. It's this amazing reflection upon the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God. You know everything about me. You know everything there is to know in the world, and you're everywhere there is in the world, but he's not done yet. He goes to another attribute of God. He starts talking about the omnipotence of our God, the all-powerful God, and he says, verse 13, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, I know that full well, He says, my frame, my skeletal structure was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together, that word is embroidered. It's a work of art. It's not just, hey, a a, a haphazard thing. He says, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my, come on, say it, my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He says, how precious to me How mind-blowing to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David's saying in this psalm, God knows everything. He's everywhere at once. And he has all the power. It's not just, though, to David, it's not just that he knows everything, he knows me. It's deeply personal. It's not just that he's everywhere, he's everywhere with me. It's not just that he has, he created everything by his power, he created me. At the moment of my conception, while I was still unformed, you saw me and all the days of my life were ordained for you. You embroidered me together. My frame, my bones were not hidden from you. As I grew from conception, you saw me every step of the way. Before any doctor with the best technology could discover me, before my mother even knew I was there, you saw me, and you put me there. You were thinking of me. Some of you didn't know your dad. Some of you didn't have a relationship with your dad. But your heavenly father, before your mother, before your doctor, before anybody knew you were there, God saw you, your unformed body. He saw you. He knew you. He was working on you then and all the way through your life. And and it's this context of this text that makes all of this so mind-blowing because we are seeing the the limitlessness of our God, not applied to the universe or the creation, but being applied to a singular life, one person, not just a singular life, but that which is most singular, that which is hidden from everyone else. You saw me, not just in conception. You, know, you didn't just see my frame, but you know me, David says. Now you know you know all of my habits and all of my patterns and all of my ways. And before a thought comes, you know it. So, so, so it's the biggest to the smallest. It's the mountainous miracles to the microscopic ones and everything in between. And all of this is why David can pray this prayer. Search me. Know me at my worst, at my lowest, at, 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 at the, the, the worst possible times in my life. And this is why we can pray this t- as well. See, David knows the love and the care and the attention that God has given him. And he's drawing this doxology of search me, know me, try me from this deep reservoir of the love of God. I think it's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 3. He says, so that Christ may dwell, so that Christ may, the word is, make himself at home. So that Christ may make himself at home in our hearts through faith. And, and Paul says, and I'm praying that you, praying that you would be rooted and established in what? In love. And, and, and that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, to, to understand, to fathom how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know, not just to be known, but to know this love that surpasses knowledge. David says it's far too wonderful, far too lofty for me that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul, prays this over the Ephesians. Paul, praise this over you and I because often we don't grasp it. We don't understand it. And this is why life has permission to beat us up sometimes. And this is why the opinions of others can strike us so deeply and can, can disrupt us so powerfully. It's why we continually look to external things to fill us up and when they never can. And we are trying so hard to be known for something that we forget that we are known by someone who loves us and has has placed infinite value upon you and upon me. And Paul just says, I pray that you'll see it. And I pray knowing that when you see it, you will be filled in a way that nothing else can fill you. And so David is saying, search me. Test me. Know me. And and I know, I know, God, that you're likely to find some offensive, some grievous, maybe even some idolatrous way in me. But I'm coming to you with all of it anyway because you're the only one who can actually do something about it. I'm praying a bold, scary, dangerous prayer because you're everywhere. You know everything. And you have the power to change me. And even if I run away from you, you will come find me because that's who you are. So Paul says, in Romans 8, he who searches our heart, this notion that God is constantly Knowing and searching our heart, and 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 because he knows the mind of the spirit, when when he knows the real us, and when he sees what's inside of us—the offensive, the grievous, the sometimes idolatrous or the anxious ways—do you know what he does in response to that? He intercedes for us. Think about that. He doesn't judge us. He He intercedes for us. He knows what's wrong. He knows what we're doing when we do it and he he intercedes for us and even after all of that it says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Verse 31, if God is what? For us. So the the God who searches our hearts, who because of the Spirit knows everything that's going on us, who, who intercedes for us in spite of it all, he's for us. And so who can be against us? Who, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Do you know who is most guilty of bringing charges against us? You are. I am against my own self and Satan, of course, as well. And, and who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. The word justifies means is, is just as if I never sinned. It's not just that he's cleared me of the charge. It's just as if I never had made the, 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 the offense in the first place. He says, it's God who just who then is the, is the one who condemns? No one. Because Christ Jesus, who died, and more than just dying, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What kind of God? searches the hearts, tr- puts our stuff on trial, and what, bound, what bounds to the top is idolatrous and offensive and, 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 and grievous ways and his responses. I'm gonna pray for them. I'm gonna intercede on their behalf. And this is why you take everything to God in prayer so, so father I pray that the word of the Lord this ancient psalm of David who when he was writing this under the inspiration of the spirit didn't know that he was writing it under the inspiration of the spirit just a man doing real talk to his God, just writing down what he was feeling, what he was knowing, what he had come to know. I pray that those real words would come off the pages of our own Bibles as maybe we reflect on them this week. And God, in the way that these words have moved me uh, to tears over and over again uh, all week long. Just this reflection on the greatness of our God. The the bigness, the, the grandeur of all of it, but that it is applied to my life is overwhelming. And I pray for everyone in this room and everyone who will listen to this somewhere who may be watching this right now that they would know that they can trust you with all of it and that you are well prepared and well able to deal with it and that you are for us and that you do not condemn us and you don't let anybody else condemn us either because you died on a cross for our sins, and more than that, you were raised back to life, and that that same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of me. The Spirit of God searching my heart, knowing all of it, interceding on my behalf, not saying good luck with that. Try harder. Not saying, hey, by your willpower, your won't power, make your way through this. God himself interceding for us. What a wonderful God. And so I pray, along with Paul, that we may come to know, that we may come to grasp and fathom how deep and how wide and how high and how measureless is the love of God for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so very much.